Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is bringing light into darkness, news, and analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Thursday, September the 22nd, 2022, and this show will be replayed live on Monday, September the 26th. 2022 from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time at koop.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. This is our 125th post-COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us, and we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Welcome. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis, with your host, Pedro Gatos. Thanks for joining us. We have a sensational show tonight, as quite frankly we have every Monday night. If your interest is to get as close to the truth as any news and analysis show will allow you, then you are in the right place. Welcome to Bringing Light into Darkness. Tonight we have progressive author Dan Kovalik. He's written extensively for a number of news sites as well. His books are on Venezuela, Iran, Russia. He's also an astute attorney, so international law is, in addition to history, is a great strength of his knowledge. Enjoy. Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness, Monday news and analysis. I am your host, Pedro Gatos. Today is Thursday, September 22nd, 2022. This show will be broadcast live on Co-op Radio on Monday, September the 26th. 2022 from 6 to 7 p.m. We are very blessed to have returning to bringing light into darkness, Daniel Kovalik. And Dan, first of all, thank you for rejoining us in such dire times. It's my pleasure. Let me just quickly introduce our guest, Daniel Kovalik. He's an attorney. He graduated from the Columbia University School of Law in 1993. He then served as an in-house counsel for the United Steelworkers of the AFL-CIO until 2019. He is a prolific author. He is an American human rights, labor rights lawyer, and peace activist. He has contributed articles to Counterpunch, the Huffington Post, Telesaur. He teaches international human rights at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. So it's very humbling to be sharing the airwaves with you, Dan, once again. And particularly, I am interested for you to share with our audience some of your legal insights on some of the issues that we'll be discussing on Russia and the Ukraine crisis that is currently occurring. Let me, if I could, just try to frame our discussion with some brief history of the conflict. With important historical context that the mainstream media presentation consistently avoids or distorts. In February 2014, there was a coup. It actually was a U.S.-led coup that our own State Department officials and embassy officials were intimately involved in. It resulted in a coup government cabinet 
that had half a dozen or more neo-Nazi members. So this ultra white, uh, excuse me, this ultra, well, it's also white, but it's the ultra right Svoboda party had some six major cabinet ministries in the government of Arsenia Yeltsin that was approved by the Ukrainian parliament following that coup. February 27th of 2014 was the parliament approval. And just a quick mention that based on a taped phone recording of Undersecretary of State Victoria Newland and our embassy head at the time, her subordinate, Jeffrey Piat, Yatsenyuk was handpicked by the United States. We essentially put into power the person we wanted through that coup, overriding their electoral choice, their democratically elected president. And the uh, deputy prime minister, Alexandra Sich, he was a co-founder of Svoboda. Andre Parabe, he was named secretary of the Security and National Defense Committee, which supervises the defense ministry and the armed forces, the deputy minister for economic affairs. The other uh, cabinet members that are of this very right-wing neo-Nazi ilk were the deputy prime minister for economic affairs, the head of the education ministry, the head of the ecology ministry, the head of the agricultural ministry, the prosecutor general of the Ukraine. So you had the prosecutor general of the Ukraine, you have the secretary of security. Two of these half a dozen or more neo-Nazi cabinet appointees of this U.S. installed coup government executing pretty much CIA-influenced military decisions in the Eastern Front following the coup. And on, on May 2nd, 2014, some 48 people were killed and burned to death when a right-wing Ukrainian forces of the same ilk burned down the trade union buildings in Odessa. Where peaceful protesters protesting the coup government took refuge. There's a good article by Jeremy Kuzmarov of May 10th, 2022, on the eighth anniversary of this horrific event. That does a good overview of all that, since there's a lot of propaganda and misleading information that tries to cover this horrific event up, one that still no one has been prosecuted for. This article, some eight years after the massacre itself, makes reference to this International Action Center, a New York-based and a war group founded by former U.S. Attorney General Ramsey Clark hosted a public commemoration that included testimony from a survivor who currently lives in the Luhansk in eastern Ukraine. And he spoke about his friend who he eyewitnessed being beaten to death by these neo-Nazi thugs with the metal bar after he jumped out of the trade union building to escape the fire. In fact, the victim's mother, after the son's death, lost her teaching position at a local university after being denounced by right-wing groups. I bring this up to talk about the repression that led to the actions of these Russian-speaking people of the East Ukraine area. What followed from the coup and what Odessa symbolized, namely this murderous repression and numerous incidents of outright, really, executions. I mean, there's a lot of evidence of those as well throughout the Donbass region of this predominantly Russian-speaking population. This ultimately led to a referendum in Crimea on March 16th, 2014, barely a month following the coup, and less than two weeks following the horrific events of Odessa. And then that was followed a couple of months later on May 11th, 2014, 
with referendums in the Donetsk and the Luhansk People's Republics that were then later recognized by Russia. And the official result from that referendum for a autonomous Republic of Crimea was 96, almost 97 percent of the vote was for the integration of that region into the Russian Federation in response to the post-coup activities. 2.5 percent voted against the referendum, 0.72 percent abstained, and 83 percent of the voters turned out for that election. Moving on, self-rule referendums have been held in Ukraine's easternmost areas with the pro-Russian separatists claiming nearly 90% voted in favor in Donetsk region. And the head of the self-proclaimed Donetsk People's Republic Election Commission told journalists that 89% had voted in favor of the self-rule with 10% against on a turnout of nearly 75%. Again, this was a vote back in May 11th, 2014. On February 21st, 2022, the Kremlin recognized the Donbass Republic as independent states and demanded that Ukraine officially declare itself a neutral country that will never join any Western military bloc. Kiev insists that the Russian offensive was completely unprovoked. And then lastly, in 2010, following the democratic election of Viktor Yanukovych, there were polls taken. In these polls, the source, we've spoken on this on the show before, but Robert Schumann Foundation, the Research and Studies Center of of Europe, did some polling and wrote about this in an article, Yanukovych, winner of the presidential election in Ukraine, 2010. This is July 10th of 2010. His data, his polling clearly indicated that Yanukovych, who won the July 10th, 2010 Ukraine presidential election, that the electoral map revealed that Yanukovych easily won in the east and the south of the Ukraine. So this is the area we're talking about, right? With peaks of popularity in the regions of Donetsk, where he received some 90.4% of the vote, in Lugansk, where he received 88.8% of the vote, and in the region of Crimea, where he received 78.3%. So I just wanted to include that because the impression that we're given by our media generates an incomplete and false understanding of history in that there is a complete absence of the fact that we had a coup in 2014. It overthrew a government where close to 80% of the population's electorally chosen president, the one that they picked got overthrown, yet there's no mention to suggest that that may have been part of the reason for the big upheaval against that coup government, not to mention the incredible murderous repression that we've already referred to. So anyhow, Dan, with that being said, as you know, but a lot of our folks may not know, we've talked about this, that Secretary of State James Baker, back in February of 1990, famously said not one inch eastward in recognition of the legitimate Soviet Union national security concerns that Washington-led NATO were agreeing to. And in 2017, the National Security Archives came out with documents that showed that, in fact, Gorbachev was assured on February 9th, 1990, that there would be no further NATO expansion. It was part of a cascade of assurances, Baker's was, about Soviet security given by Western leaders to Gorbachev and other Soviet officials throughout the process of German unification in 1990. And according to declassified U.S., Soviet, German, British, and French documents, posted on that National Security Archive, this is clearly the factual basis 
of the claims that Putin has shared. Lastly, Putin claimed that there was an imminent invasion that was going to occur in the Donbass and that there were these missile strikes that were increasingly occurring along that military confrontation line in that area on the eve of the Russian special operation initiated on February 22nd, 2022. And Dan, maybe you can start with what is the Russian perspective? They're seeing this potential invasion and reacting accordingly. But can you speak to first the the missile strike issue and the buildup of the Ukrainian forces, some 120 to 150,000 there? We heard about Russia forces building up, building up, building up. In the days and weeks leading up to the February 24th, 2022 Russian invasion. But our media never told us about why they were building up. Or about the Ukrainian military buildup leading up to this invasion. Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, so first of all, as you outlined, we have to start with the fact that this war did not start in February of this year. It started eight years ago. And it was a war between the government of Kiev, which, as you say, by that time was a right-wing government that was very anti-Russian and not only anti-country of Russia, it was against its own ethnic Russians. It outlawed the Russian language in the schools. And the new president, the coup president in 2014, Poroshenko, made a statement that the Russian-speaking people in the, in the East would end up living for the rest of their lives in bunkers. So in response to this, in response to attacks on Russian speakers, they declared independence, Donetsk and Lugansk, and a civil war essentially ensued between the government of Kiev and those republics in which 14,000 people died before February of this year. Okay, so that's the background. Now, In 2021, the months leading up to the Russian intervention in February, a few things were happening. First of all, so you had Zelensky, this president who was elected in 2019, and he was elected on a peace platform. He had promised in his campaign that he was going to make peace with Russia and with the Russian-speaking peoples in the Donbass. That's why he was elected. But very quickly, and the gray zone has some good pieces on this, Zelensky's hand really was forced to backtrack from that. And it was forced by the neo-Nazi groups that had an inordinate amount of influence over the government and the military. Uh, And it seems like they basically threatened to kill him if he did make peace. Mm -hmm. And if he tried to move against these neo-Nazi groups, which he did have some desire to do. And so ultimately, he capitulated to them, and he therefore did not make peace with the Russian-speaking people in the East. And by spring of 2021, he was starting to threaten to forcibly take back the Crimea from Russia, to forcibly take back the breakaway republics of Donetsk and Lugansk. And this is what the Russians were worried about. Now, What we also don't hear about is that in the days, literally the days before the Russian intervention, there were over 2,000 ceasefire violations between the government of Kiev and those breakaway republics, most of which were committed by the Kiev government, meaning they started shelling on an unprecedented basis compared to the recent years prior, the Russian-speaking peoples in the east of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. 
And I'm not the one who's saying this. Who is saying this was the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which is a international body with 57 different countries that are parties to it, including the United States. Mm -hmm. Its current head is a German. Okay. And they were the ones saying that there were 2000 ceasefire violations, mostly committed by the government of Kiev before Russia intervened. So what we know is that there was an escalation of aggression by Kiev against these peoples of their own country before Russia intervened. And that's what led to the intervention. And Dan, can you also speak to, and do you have knowledge of what the Russian intelligence was regarding an impending invasion into the Donbass area and the Crimea area that President Putin has alluded to that was part of the reason that Russia invaded? In other words, the buildup of the numbers of Ukraine troops in the area are also consistent with Russia's concern of an impending invasion of the Donbass by the Ukraine forces. As you've already mentioned, the OSCE indicated that there was like a 20-fold increase in missile strikes from that area into the Donbass that preceded the days of the invasion. Yes. So according to Russian intelligence, and, and, and by the way, this was corroborated by French intelligence as well, and by Actually, a guy, a former Swiss intelligence officer wrote about this and also corroborated this. Yes, that would be Yakbad. Yes. So Ukraine started to mount forces. The government of Kiev started to mount forces on this border with the Donbass region. I think the number was something like 60,000 troops or so. It was mounting those troops prior to the Russian intervention. Again, the mounting of those troops, in addition to these ceasefire violations, is what motivated Russia to intervene. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, people might say, well, okay, it, you know, if you read my writings, I'm very much concerned about national integrity. I'm very much against foreign interventions in the country's domestic affairs. And one might say, well, wasn't this a domestic issue between the, the West and the East, essentially? In Ukraine. And, you know, I guess an argument could be made in that regard. But, but here's what Russia was dealing with, that one, these were peoples, Russian speaking people that, you know, have families in Russia proper. Right. This was a country that was part of the Soviet Union up till 1991 with a border that was shifting all the time. Right. And during the eight years of war between 2014 and 2022, you had hundreds of thousands of ethnic Russians who actually emigrated to Russia to flee the conflict. I think that there were about, by the time of the intervention in February 2022, maybe something like 1.5 million ethnic Russians had fled Ukraine into Russia, most of them living in the Rostov-on-Don city, which is on the border there. By now, you have about 2.5 million Ukrainians who have moved into Russia. And in fact, Russia now houses the most amount of refugees from that conflict. And those people, most of those people, by and large, feel more comfortable in Russia than they do in Ukraine, feel a certain bond with the Russian people. So this was an issue for Russia, not, and, and also because what Russia understood, in which I think any rational, honest person has to understand, 
is this was not only a war against the ethnic Russians in Ukraine, but this was ultimately a war against Russia itself, that the U.S. and NATO was using Ukraine for years to try to undermine Russia, the territorial integrity of Russia to try to destroy Russia. And that that process was escalating at the time Russia intervened in February 2022. That they knew that once these troops that Kiev was assembling on the border of the Donbass invaded the Donbass en masse, that they would not stop there. And let's face it, they're right. They are existentially threatened by the West. And the West is pretty clear about this, right? I think also to your point, the fact that John Brennan, our CIA director, flew over there on a couple of, at least one occasion. In fact, he denied he was there until they revealed pictures that he was there. And of course, not only that he was there, but arguably was directing the military repression of the East through direct contact with the new coup government's far right wing led special forces. The absolute intimate relationship that the United States had in directing the offensive's response in the Donbass post-coup is, is enormous. Let me ask you this, and let me just remind our listeners, we're speaking to the esteemed lawyer and professor, Daniel Kovalek, and author. Dan, so Russia sent troops into Ukraine on the 24th of February, and they also claim that these Minsk agreements that were designed to give the regions of Donetsk and Lugansk a special status within the Ukrainian state, right? Now, subsequent to that, on February 21st, 2022, Russia recognized them as independent breakaway republics from the Ukraine. And now they are going to have referendums to become part of Russia here between the 23rd and the 27th. This month, September 2022, basically as we speak, in Zaporizhzhia and Kherson, Two other oblasts, if you will, will also be having these referendums. But can you just explain a little bit in your comments about the international kind of legality and the recognition of these referendums? We speak in the United States all the time about we want to promote democracy and those types of things. It seems fairly democratic that if 96% of the people vote and some 80% vote in favor of uh, becoming part of Russia, as what happened in the Crimea, for instance, um, that that should have some legitimacy. But is that an annexation, the annexation argument? Or how do you interpret the democratic theater here as far as the actions that were taken by these people, rather than it being, you know, a Russian strong-handed uh, approach there? Can you can you speak to those issues? Yeah. Well, first of all, you mentioned the Minsk agreements. And as you say, so the Minsk agreements, by the way, there's two of them, Minsk Agreement 1 and Minsk Agreement 2. These were agreements that Ukraine agreed to, and which, by the way, were approved by the Security Council of the United Nations, which is really the governing body of the world, and approved by every member, including the United States. So this was law. This was international law. And according to the Minsk agreements, which were agreements to resolve the conflict between Kiev and eastern Ukraine, which, by the way, proved that there was a conflict, right? Though we're being urged to ignore that fact. According to those agreements, a couple things that were supposed to happen was that, first of all, Kiev was supposed to stop attacking the Donbass. But two, Donetsk and Lugansk, the two breakaway republics, were eventually entitled under those agreements to have referendums 
in which they could vote on having a certain amount of autonomy from Kiev, but it would be within a republic still with the borders of Ukraine that are exist today. So it would not be total autonomy, but it'd be a certain amount of federal autonomy within Ukraine. So that was contemplated by the Minsk agreements, with this, which the Security Council approved. Excuse yeah. me for nothing, but I remember, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember that Donetsk and Lugansk were asking for Russian protection and absorption into the Russian Federation. But Putin originally denied that in favor of this Minsk agreement in which they would be kind of like autonomous regions within Ukraine rather than being absorbed by Russia. Is that correct? Well, yes. I mean, for years, Lugansk and Donetsk have been begging for Russian intervention to protect them. And yes, to either for them to become part of Russia or for them to become totally independent. And yes, Putin has frankly held off on that for eight years. And by the way, the second largest party in Russia, the Communist Party of the Russian Federation, has also been echoing those calls for eight years. They wanted Putin to intervene a lot earlier. So, I mean, in truth, I think it's fair to say Putin has been fairly patient in dealing with this problem. Mm-hmm. So that brings us to today, where now there's going to be referendums held, where Lugansk and Donetsk and at least two other regions are going to have referendums in which they're going to vote whether to join the Russian Federation. Now, again, all this, you know, truthfully under international law is a bit complicated. Excuse me, Dan, we need to take a quick break, a pause for the cause here at 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin the premier community radio station of the nation. This is bringing light into darkness, and we'll be back with our very special guest, Dan Kovalik, after this brief pause. Don't touch that dial.